I invite you to take your Bibles with me this morning and open to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5 may sound strange to you if you've been with us a while. We've been going through the Gospel of Luke verse by verse, but today is a special occasion. So I'd like to preach to you from 1 Peter 5. And I've entitled this message, Shepherding the Flock. Shepherding the Flock. 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 4. I'll read the text to you before we begin. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you, as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Lord, we bow before you this morning. Bow before your word. We want it to fill our hearts, to fill our minds, to teach us, Lord, what it means, either shepherd, those of us who are shepherds, or to be shepherded, Lord. What does it mean to be part of this flock of God? And help us, O Lord, to pull out the truth of this text and to apply it into not only our personal lives, but the lives of this church. Lord, we ask this in Christ's name. It is a message for our whole church to understand what a shepherd is, what they do, and how important they are in the function of a church. You see, to to many professing believers today, it's not even important to be a part of a church. Many people call themselves Christians, but have turned away from gathering together with God's people for various reasons. Many churches that are out there don't have any leadership at all, or if they have a leadership, it's not qualified according to how the Bible defines qualifications. And so, you know, here at Grace Bible, we seek as best we can to follow the word. And it has a lot to say about how the church is to be led, how the church is to be governed. God knows us. He knows our hearts. He knows that we're like sheep and that we're, we're constantly trying to stray away and go on our own path. And so he's provided us shepherds. He's provided us a guide, really under shepherds, under Christ to guide us, to lead us, to guard us. You know, in Matthew, Jesus is going from city to city and He's teaching the people and He's healing them and He sees the people and he, it says He felt compassion for them. Why? Because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. A sheep without a shepherd, Christians without a shepherd get, get often discouraged, dispirited, and distressed. Whole churches can be discouraged without a proper leadership in the church. And while Jesus is himself the chief shepherd, we saw that here in verse 4, we want to talk especially this morning about the under-shepherds that he has given the church of Christ, each local church of Christ. He wanted his church to have a clear understanding of biblical leadership. He didn't leave us in the dark. I mean, what is the Word of God for? It's to save us when we hear the Gospel, but it's also to sanctify us. 
And part of that is to help us grow as a corporate body of Christ. And yet, if you were to come to my house and go into my office and look at some of my books, Autumn recently packed up a few shelves for me in anticipation that we might move soon, Lord willing. But if you were to look at some of my systematic theologies or some of my commentaries on this passage even, you would see people say the Bible doesn't specify any specific form of church government. Well, the Bible doesn't say much about church leadership, they will say. It's unclear. They will often say that they can't exactly be sure of what's being said, even in this passage, and are reluctant to say that there's a clear pattern of New, Ter- New Testament church. Now, you might say throw those out, but there are other sections where they're okay. But many see, even in this passage, something that's called an elder. A shepherd, someone who's given specific duties, oversight, exercise oversight. And so I would say that some of these books and these men and these churches and these denominations have even put tradition over the Bible. They've elevated whatever kind of church leadership they've had for centuries over what God's word says. That's what happens when we lower the expectations for church leadership. Do you realize that most straying of whole churches can be traced back to the leadership, either of that specific church or the whole denomination and that leader? One person in charge of a local church. What's going to happen when that person falls? What's going to happen when that person commits a sin? The the church often will even fold. Eventually, if that one person in charge or the whole denominational body all over America decides to move away from the gospel, it will become watered down. Often the the qualifications for leadership get watered down. We'll have any man or today even woman in the place of an elder. The Bible gets set aside. The gospel gets totally lost. Worldliness and sin is brought into the church and accepted because there are no longer qualified leaders to guard and to protect and to feed. Does that not describe most churches in America today? I mean, I'm not being pessimistic. Sometimes people hear this kind of thing preached and they think, man, this is one of those fire and brimstone churches. We haven't got there yet. That's probably not today in this text. But that's just the church. Even the liberal media can report on the list of things that I just mentioned. Here's what one scholar in 1847 said. 1847. He said, as we advance through the centuries, began to decrease in the church. Why, he says, because the torch of the scripture begins to grow dim and because the deceitful light of human authorities begins to replace it. Human authority got elevated above scripture and wasn't in line with scripture. And therefore, the light of scripture became dim and dimmer and dimmer as time went on. And then you have revivals and reformations, of course, praise God. But we often wonder, What has happened in the church, even in our lifetime? So what does this have to do with our church? Well, the question comes down, what kind of leadership does the Bible teach us, especially the New Testament? And then how does this text speak to those leaders as to how we are to shepherd the flock of God? So, you know, Christ gave us a model. It is in Scripture. Something so important, he wouldn't leave for us to just sort of run it like a business or run it like the government, both of which can often get into trouble of their own. He left us 
some specific instructions. Now in 1 Peter, Peter's writing to, to Christians around 60s, 60 AD, and, and he's writing to tell them how to face persecution. Just like our world and even our country today is being more and more, the church is being persecuted. They were severely persecuted at this time. Peter writes to them to encourage them. He writes to them to exhort them on how to live during this persecution. And now we come to near the end of his book. We jump right in on chapter 5. And he's starting with the leaders. He's starting with the leaders. And you see it says, therefore. I just want to make a comment. Therefore, go back to 417. Here's the therefore. Based on 4.17, he's going to give instructions in chapter 5. And 4 verse 17, For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? There's the context there that we're going into, that we're wading into. Judgment will begin in the household of God. The judgment where he will expect the leaders of the church and the believers of the church to come before our Lord and Savior and not be judged based on heaven or hell, but be judged on how we did as servants of Christ and be judged based on the rewards that we will or will not receive because of our service to Christ, to his body, to others. And so Peter admonishes them, look, during persecution, there's no time to get weak. There's no time to forget the gospel. There's no time to move away from the truth. Stick with the truth. That's what he says in chapter 5. But it's all based on this fact that judgment begins first with the household of God. And then if it begins there, imagine how bad it will be, a different type of judgment for the world that does not obey the gospel of God. So I've divided our scripture this morning up into three sections, three points. And I want, first of all, for us to look at the relationship of Peter to the elders. When Peter writes to the elders, he, he just wants to come along as a fellow elder and exhort them. And so he develops this relationship and he tells them where he's and why he's exhorting them. Well, look here at the very first word after, therefore, he says, I exhort I exhort, strongly urges. He appeals the elders in these churches. And even to us today, he, he tells us, he exhorts us, he, he appeals to us. Now, he could just command us. I command you to do this as an apostle of Jesus Christ. He had that authority. But he comes along and he says, look, I exhort the elders among you. And he's going to give us later his qualifications for doing that. Now, I want you to notice He says elders, is that in the singular or the plural? It's plural. There's more than one, obviously. I exhort the elders among you in each church. It's a plural word, elders with an S. The the early church started with one church in each city. And in each of those churches, there was a group of elders that governed the church a group of elders that led the church under Christ. The apostles would often plant these churches, especially Paul. And then you would see him coming back through like you do in Acts 14, and he would appoint elders in each church. Elders, plural, and each church, singular. You remember when Paul wrote to Titus, the whole book of Titus begins with, I left you in Crete to appoint multiple elders in every church. That was the purpose of him writing. He goes on to say, what they should be, what kind of men 
they should be in Titus 1. My point is the consistent pattern in the New Testament, if we start in Acts, when the church started, we go all the way to Revelation. The consistent pattern is we always see a plurality of elders. Now granted, when a church first plants, there may not be any elders. For a time, Paul planted the church, went on, and then came back through and appointed elders. There may just be one elder for a time. But eventually, the church should get to the point where there is more than one qualified man to lead. And that's where, thankfully, we're at here today with Grace Bible Church. The Lord has raised up another man, has brought us a qualified man, and we look forward to seeing his shepherding done here at the church. But how many churches are moving away from this model? And they have for centuries of having a plurality of elders. Peter writes to the elders, plural. You know, one a seminarian who studied churches, this is in the last couple of decades, he says churches that only have one elder as an authority above others, thus in function he calls the guy kind of like a pope, has a disproportionately high number of moral failures at the top level of a church. The guy saying, I've studied churches for years. He's at a seminary and he says, without fail, there is more moral failures in leadership when there's only one guy without any accountability. And that's why it's so important to have a plurality of elders for accountability. For accountability. The elders at Curvo Bible have held us accountable. Never could we just go our own way and do what we wanted with this church plan. Now, thankfully, we were all in agreement where we needed to go. But there's an accountability structure that is given to us in the New Testament. So when Peter says elders, plural, he's inferring that, something they already knew in these churches that he writes to. Even the guy who stands in the pulpit regularly, that's me at this church, the, the what you might call the teaching elder, doesn't have ultimate authority over other elders in the church. It's a The elders are collectively holding the same authority under Christ to shepherd, to govern, to rule the church. And even here, we've made it in our bylaws, we've made it specify that no major decisions can be made without unanimous vote by the elders. And even after that, some decisions that are so big and have such wide-ranging implications for our church that we want the body to also vote on those decisions as well. So what is the relationship of other elders then to a teaching elder, a teaching pastor? Well, the teaching elder is often, I mentioned, I believe it was last week when we went through the different disciples. You remember the 12 disciples? Who was the guy who was always putting his foot in his mouth? That was Peter. Why was he doing that? Because he was the main speaker most often in, in the New Testament gospel. I mean, we see Peter speaking most of the time. And that's sort of my position here. I put my foot in my mouth all the time, right? Not too many laughs at that, so I guess it's more serious than I thought. No, my position here is to bring the word before you because of how God's gifted me, because of the past studies, because of training. That's what he's called me to do. But other elders also have a role in teaching. Other elders have the same authority. The elders are equal and there's more than one. That's what I wanted to show you just with this word, elders among you. And he says when he appeals to them, he starts off, his qualifications by saying, as your fellow elder. As I said, he's an apostle. He could just say what he wanted to, and they would do it, or at least they should do it. But Peter was also an elder. I, I think he was an elder in the Jerusalem church, if you read through Acts. 
He seems to be an elder in authority there, in leadership there in Jerusalem. But it was likely because of his apostleship that no matter where he went, he was an elder in every church during his lifetime. They would consider him like a leader. They would consider him to have authority over them and among them even. So he appeals as a fellow elder. He understands what it is to be an elder. He understands, Joy, when the work gets hard, and he understands the weight upon our shoulders as elders. And he's telling us, look, I'm your fellow elder. And he even has one up from us, right? He witnessed, it says, the sufferings of Christ. He was there. He was there when Christ was arrested. He was there at least close by when Christ was beaten. He was close by when Christ was put on the cross. And then he got to see Christ when Christ was resurrected. Now, I think he says this. I think he says, I witness the sufferings of Christ as a hint to, to tell elders that he's writing to, look, you may have to suffer for the church, especially in that day. You may have to give your life for the church. We, in our class this morning before church, we came up with this list of people who died because they loved the Lord so much. They had such a great fear of the Lord that they had died for it. And that's the kind of men that Peter's writing to. Leaders in the church that would eventually have to die for their faith or be put in jail or have their families taken away from them. And you know, it's getting to be that close to that in our world today. In some parts of the world, they're still doing that very thing. But we've sort of been protected here for a couple of hundred years. And the, the window on that is closing quickly. Have you heard about the law in Massachusetts this last week? You have A church has to have a restroom that is men can enter women's restroom and women can enter men's restroom. The church does in Massachusetts. Now the loophole is they said this is only if you open your church to the public. Like a spaghetti dinner or other, you know, examples, which we're open to the public every Sunday morning, aren't we, here at this church. So you know what happens? They, they went on to say, or the, the lawyers who are trying to fight this now, this just happened, I think, on Monday that it came out this bathroom, if you put a sign up, this bathroom is for biological women only. That could subject the pastor or the church leaders to up to 30 days in jail. So, Joey, are you ready to go to jail if we have to? Ten years, five years from now, maybe 20 years, I don't know. We think we're, we're special in Texas, but, you know, the, Satan can work in Texas as well, can't he? Yeah. So he writes to the church and he says, leaders... I witnessed the sufferings of Christ. And what did Christ say? Right? If, you, if they persecuted me, what are they going to do to all believers? They would persecute you. And you know who they go after in Muslim countries? They don't, they don't always go after every Christian in the church. I mean, they would, they would like to if they could. But often the leaders in, in many countries, for example, ISIS, will, they will find the pastors, the, the elders, the leaders of the church and kill them and, and put them in jail in China, hoping that that will sort of stamp out the church growth as a whole and make everybody go. So we may have to suffer. And his his third point here, as he sort of builds up his case before he gives the command, he builds up his case and says, I am also a partaker of the glory that is to be revealed. You see that in verse 1? A partaker, a, a sharer in the glory. When Christ comes back, we're going to be glorified. And so and on one level, Peter's saying, I, I'm a fellow believer and I'm going to be glorified when Christ returns. Peter thought it could happen in his lifetime. It could happen in our lifetime. He, he's going to be a part of that. And Peter got a glimpse of that glory, didn't he? 
on the mountain, the transfiguration. He got to see what that looked And so I'm sure his whole life he waited for that and longed for that. And now he's telling these folks that he's writing to, look, I'm also a sharer with you. I'm a, a believer with you. When Christ returns, we're all going to share in that together. And as elders, that ought to give us an admonishment even. Look, Christ is coming back. We're going to have to stand before him and answer for the decisions we made here at Grace Bible Church. We're going to have to answer for how we taught the word. We're going to have to answer for how we faithfully held to Scripture as our church grew and as our church moved forward in time. So all that in verse 1 to say that Peter is making his case of who he is and why we should listen to him before he exhorts directly the elders. And that's point number two. In verses 2 and 3, the exhortation to elders. The exhortation to elders. This is where it gets more challenging for us because he's going to exhort us. He's going to appeal to us, to encourage us in verses 2 and 3. He says, in a command, shepherd, shepherd the flock of God among you. That's all he says. Now that's huge, but notice he doesn't say entertain the flock among you. He doesn't say build a business with the flock among you. He doesn't say build tons of nice buildings and ministries with the flock among you. Now as we grow, Lord willing, we might need a bigger building, but that's not the command here, right? That's not what he's saying. Shepherd the flock among you. That means the elders of each local church are being exhorted, being commanded here to pasture, to shepherd, same word, pastor, shepherd, the flock of sheep that God puts us over. We are to shepherd you all, the members of this church, and hopefully the new members that are about to join this church. The verb here in Greek is a poimino. Poimino. I say that to you because we're going to look at the noun form here in a minute. But the verb means to tend or lead sheep to pasture. It's figuratively used in the New Testament about shepherding people. It's not unclear. It means shepherds of a local. Do you remember when Christ was restoring Peter to ministry? What did he tell him? He kept asking him, right? Do you love me, Peter? And, and Peter kept saying, you know, of course I do. And Christ said, tend my lambs. Shepherd my sheep, tend my sheep. Now that was not a command to Peter as if he was the Pope and he was going to shepherd the whole church. That started with him. Then he took it to the other apostles and told them what Christ said, of course. And that carries down even today with the qualified elders in the church. To shepherd, poimino, to to shepherd, to tend, to lead the sheep. Now in Ephesians 4, go back to Ephesians 4. We see the noun of this verb. So what is it in in 1 Peter 5? It's shepherd. Now we go to Ephesians 4.11. Ephesians 4.11. If you'd like to turn there. This is a key if you've not seen it before. It says, And he, that's Christ, gave some as apostles, some as prophets. Those, Those two offices have now passed away. And some as evangelists. And some as pastors and teachers. And then he goes on to tell what they're for. They're for equipping the saints for the work of service to building up the body. But do you see that word pastors there? You know what the noun is there? I said the verb was, and this is poor. Sounds pretty similar in Greek. That means it is very similar. Same root word. Has to do with sheep. Has to do with sheep. The shepherd 
in a verb form is in 1 Peter 5, and in the noun form, shepherds right here in the church, shepherds and teachers. Now, we call the word pastors in English, and it's sort of developed as the guy who stands up as the pastor, and that's fine. That's sort of our English Protestant tradition. But realize all elders are called to pastor the sheep. What is a pastor? Shepherd. What is a shepherd? A pastor. What is an elder? A shepherd. What is an elder? A pastor. Now, we've designated teaching pastor already, but I want to show you that key there. Uh, We often don't use terminology for all the elders in the church to call them pastors, but they are essentially the same as far as their function and their duties and their office in the New Testament. Now think of a sheep here. You've probably heard long sermons. Listen to John MacArthur on shepherding and he will talk to you for 30 minutes about the history of shepherding. I'm not going to do that this morning, but you're welcome to go and study those commentaries that he's written on even this passage. But think about sheep. We're often told that they're dumb animals, which when we're called sheep as Christians, you know, we don't, we don't like that. But they can't feed themselves. They have to be led to pasture. They can't find water. Other animals can smell water from a distance and find it. Sheep can be just over a hillside from water and they won't lead themselves to water and drink. They can't protect themselves. I even heard... Uh, MacArthur, as he was describing this, say that they today will have a sheep run through the chute. It's called a Judas sheep, and he'll lead all the other ones into slaughter. They'll let him out, and he'll come back around and get another group. And they'll just keep following into the slaughterhouse all day. The Judas sheep. Well, sheep need a shepherd. Sheep need a shepherd. And that's why Christ has appointed shepherds in his church. The, the key thing is that we're still sheep as well. We, we're shepherds. But we're still sheep, so we have to watch one another, shepherd one another, let the whole body come around us and admonish us, hopefully not too often, but hold us accountable for sticking to the Word of God. Now he says, shepherd the flock of God. So what is a shepherd? It's, it's a leader, it's a, it's a pastor, it's an elder. But what are they doing? They're, they're shepherding the flock of God. Now, the sheep are God's flock. This church is God's flock. Christ is the chief shepherd. God the Father owns the flock. He created this flock. He bought this flock. It's not our flock. We have to do our best at leading according to what He's given us. But ultimately it is His flock. He bought it with His Son's life. He gets to say and give the commands to how the flock should live. Flock among you. There's a flock of God among you. You see that in the text in verse 3? It's the flock of God among you. The role of an elder is not to just sort of set things up in the church and disappear or show up in the pulpit on Sunday morning and say, have a good week. We'll see you later. Or one guy show up while the other elders are always on vacation. It's you got to be among the people. We have to be among the people. And, and you are a good example of that as you come and and lead us in, in our prayer meeting devotionals, on our men's Bible study. I was joking with Joey, you know, we're putting him to work this week. He had to teach for an hour this morning. He got to hear that. He taught on the fear of the Lord. He's leading our men's Bible study on Tuesday morning this week. He's the, he's the group leader. And then on Wednesday night, he's leading the 15-minute devotional for the men's, for the prayer meeting that everybody's invited to this Wednesday night. So we're putting him to work already. He's among us. And that's why membership is so important as well. I could even mention that because we have an upcoming class. Who is he among? 
Who are you? Who are who is the body? Who are the sheep? Who are the goats? What are the testimonies of the sheep? What are the struggles of the sheep? What are the shrinks of the sheep? What are the giftings of the sheep? That's important for an elder, for a shepherd to know. That's why a membership is so important. We get to sit down here, your testimony, talk to you, hear about your gifting, where you might serve. So it's important that the body be there as well as the shepherds. The sheep and the shepherds go together. Now, here's what he's supposed to do. How are you to shepherd? You see that? Exercising oversight. Exercising oversight. This is where it gets challenging for, for many Christians today, many churches, because it sounds a bit authoritative. So we need to open up exercising oversight. Now he goes on to say what kind of attitude you're to have. And we'll look at that. But first of all, what is exercising oversight? He doesn't actually define it here because it's been defined in the New Testament. It's to have responsibility for the care of someone. That's the basic definition. How do you exercise oversight? You have responsibility. You care for them. And here, even in the, in the Greek New Testament, it, it implies a special responsibility within the church to oversee how the church functions, to how the church lives, how the church grows. We could break it down into four categories. If you're taking notes, that's four things that a shepherd should do. They're found in other scriptures, but I want you to know them. It's very important. What does it mean, Joey, for you to shepherd this flock? First of all, you have to feed the sheep. You have to feed the sheep. That's exactly what Christ told Peter. Feed my sheep. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Now David's writing this, and he was a shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. How do we do that? How do we take part in laying down by quiet waters, feeding on green pastures. We're to feed the sheep. That's teach the Word of God. This is where it begins. It really begins and ends, doesn't it? I mean, everything that I've told you already is in the Bible. Everything pretty much that I'm going to tell you for the next 15 minutes or so is in the Bible. Feed the sheep. It's where we get all the commands. It's where we get how to live. It's where we get how to love. The Bible. That's why we spend an hour before church going through a topic on the Bible. That's why we, men and women, meet this week in different men's and women's Bible studies to focus on the Word. That's why we start our prayer meeting by engaging our minds and hearts with the Word before we pray. That's why we go to conferences. That's why we have men's retreats and women's retreats. Yes, to have a good time. Yes, to fellowship. But it's got to be where we are fed. We have to feed on the Word. You know, the Bible's not popular today, is it? Is the Bible popular where you work? Can you just take the Bible and start reading it? Can you go into some churches in the greater San Antonio area and you're going to find that the Bible is not popular? Unfortunately, that's so. And there's a trend today to set aside the Bible. I've mentioned that already, but the reason is because supposedly it's not relevant to our culture. For 2,000 years it was relevant, but all of a sudden today it's not relevant. We're so different, aren't we? You know, we're not different. We're just like Adam and Eve. We have a, a sin nature. After they fell, they had a sin nature. The Bible's always relevant. Now, it's the teacher's, the elder's job to explain it in a way we can understand it, to apply it in a way that it will be taken the right way and applied into our life in a relevant manner. But the Bible is always a relevant message. So the elders to feed the sheep. Titus 1.9 says, Elders, 
must hold fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, the teaching passed down from Christ to the apostles, so that he will be able to exhort in sound doctrine. He doesn't have to be, you know, a John Piper, a Steve Lawson, a Charles Spurgeon. But as an elder, he's got to be able to exhort in sound doctrine. He's leading the church. I'm an elder. I'm leading the church. If we can't exhort in sound doctrine, encourage with the sound truths of Scripture, we're just going to drift away as a church because we're just going to accept everything that comes in through the modern evangelical build a big church real fast movement or even the world. This means that elders must have a knowledge of Scripture, a readiness to teach it if needed, and the ability to communicate the gospel and the Christian. That's part of feeding the sheep. Now, as I said, not all elders are going to do that every week. That's 1 Timothy 5.17. Those who labor at the word regularly, they do it so much that they can't work elsewhere. Those are men who are paid to study the word and to preach it and teach it more regularly. But all elders must be ready to feed the sheep, to exhort in sound doctrine. Secondly, they must, they must lead. The word in the New Testament here is often translated before our modern times as bishop, episkopos, a bishop. It just means overseer. Now the word's been mishandled, so we don't use it anymore in the church, but it means to lead is to be an overseer. Exercising oversight includes a general leadership of the church as a guardian, as a supervisor. You remember in 1 Timothy 3, the qualifications I read a few weeks ago when we were voting on He must manage, be a good manager of his own household. Why? Because if he can't manage his own household, how is he going to manage the flock of God? That's what Paul writes to Peter. So he must feed the sheep. He must lead. Leading includes handling money. It includes training and appointing other elders. Training up faithful men to be deacons. It includes training up other men and women to serve in the church, to evangelize, to teach the gospel. Thirdly, elders must also guard and protect. It's not enough just to feed. It's not enough just to lead, but they must guard and protect the sheep. What does this look like? Turn over to Acts chapter 20. Now you might be wondering, where is all this in 1 Peter 5? It's there. It's in two words, exercising oversight. Now we're opening up what those two words mean. To feed, to lead, to guard. Acts 20, verse 28. Paul sits down with the Ephesian elders. He's passing close by. He calls them to come meet with them. He sits down, and this is probably the last time he's going to see them, so at least he thinks it is. And so he, he gives them a specific charge. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know, it's a fact, he says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Savage wolves are going to come in among the Ephesian church. We can read about that in First and Second Timothy. We can read in Revelation how they've lost their first love. Savage wolves. You know, sheep can't protect themselves. That's why the shepherd has often a shepherd's crook, but also a stick or even a sword to protect the sheep. David tells the story before he's going to defeat Goliath of how he would go and rescue the lambs that would be taken in the lion's mouth or the bear's mouth, and he would smite the, the lion or the bear. Thankfully, we haven't had that yet. We're a new church. We're only about eight or nine months old as far as a formal church goes. But there will be a time. When wolves will come amongst us, 
What does he say in, in this passage? Be on guard for yourselves. Joey, we've got to be guarding ourselves and the flock at the same time because savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. They're going to come in and they're going to kind of grab sheep and take off. I'm not talking about churches stealing people as much as false teachers coming in. And so how do we guard and protect? Well, we make sure to feed. That's the positive side. We feed the flock so they know a counterfeit when they see one. But even then, some of these savage wolves are very sly. They're very good. And so we also have to be sometimes teach from a more negative side by calling out false teachings by name and sometimes even false teachers if necessary. Because even watered down false gospels can easily make their way into our hearts, into our church, and start to dilute the truth of Scripture. And so continuing into Titus 2.9, not only, Joey, do you have to exhort in sound doctrine, but it also says you have to refute those who contradict. An elder has to refute those people who contradict. Titus, I'm sorry, not 2.9, Titus 1.9, it must refute those who contradict the truth of the gospel, the truth of Scripture. Doesn't mean you have to be like Paul when he says, you know, you Judaizers want to circumcise your, go mutilate yourselves. You don't have to be like that, Joy, but it might call for that sometimes. But we have to be ready to guard this flock that God has given us. Now, the last one doesn't really come from the, the shepherding, but the fourth thing that an elder should do is to pray. You can look at Acts 6 4, where the apostles said, we're going to focus on praying for the body and ministering the word. We're going to appoint these other men as kind of like deacons to take care of the church's physical needs. So the elders should feed the flock. They should lead the flock. They should guard the flock and pray for the flock. That would be our big four. They're not priests. You don't come to an elder to confess. You don't bow down before an elder. You don't ask them to mediate. I don't even like it when places around town want me to come and bless something. I mean, I'm not going to bless anything. I'm going to pray, but I don't bless buildings, things like that. We're not tyrants. Elders are not tyrants telling you how exactly to live your life. We're just serving the word. So now let's jump back into 1 Peter. We understand what exercising oversight is. Now you can understand how this kind of authority might lead to some abuse. Has anybody ever been in a church where You've seen abuse of the leadership abusing others. It happens. It happens. Sometimes the whole church will fold. So Peter recognizes this. And in 1 Peter 5, he begins to tell us what kind of attitude we should have. And it says, not under compulsion. When you shepherd, it's not to be under compulsion. In other words, hopefully no one has forced you to want to be an elder. Hopefully you didn't say in your heart, well, nobody else is stepping up to do it. So I'm just going to feel compelled to go ahead and step up. Might as well be me. Somebody's got to do it. No, you're supposed to do it voluntarily, it says. A wholehearted desire to serve Christ and his people. You guys don't want elders that you force into that position. Even though you might think he's the number one candidate, you kind of propel him up there. He doesn't really want to be here. He can't teach. He doesn't have the qualifications. That's not the way the Bible says to do it. 1 Timothy 3.1 It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of an overseer, that's an elder, it is a fine work he desires to do. The desire is a strong passion, a passionate desire to be an elder. It's a good thing. You've got to desire it yourself. 
And it's according to the will of God. That's what God wants. He wants us to serve us with a willing heart. That's better. The love from a willing heart is better than even sacrifice, he says in the Old Testament. So if you're qualified, if you desire it, if the congregation affirms it, which they all have in your case, then it's God's will for you to serve and you desire it, then we are happy to install you today. Also, look at this second issue we've got to look for as elders, not for sordid gain. You cannot appoint an elder. You cannot want to be an elder to make money off the flock, to embezzle funds, to skim money, to use the church for personal financial gain. gain. There, there, there are pastors who actually try to soak as much money as they can from the congregation to buy their own $5 million jet. And then when that hits the news, they downgrade to a $2 million jet and get a Bentley as a car. We didn't get into eldering, shepherding to be financially well. Now, sometimes the teaching pastor, yes, they do have a salary from the church because they're spending most of their time shepherding and teaching and preaching. But most people will tell you even that is not a good thing to do if you're looking to be filthy rich. Don't go and preach the Bible to people who don't always want to hear it and start a new church. Thankfully, the Lord has brought people who do want to hear the word here. He's given us a good financial standing. But as elders, we're not to do that for sordid gain, for shameful gain. That's what false teachers do. They come in and they just want money. They just want power. They sometimes want women. And that's what you see in the New Testament. Not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. With eagerness. It ought to be something that you're eager to do. But balance that with James 3.1, right? Just in case there's anybody out there who wants to be eager. Yes, that's a good thing. Eager to rule, eager to be an elder. But let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. We'll be judged more harshly if we drift away from the teaching of Scripture. And then the third danger, uh, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge. Don't dominate those in the church. When a situation arises, we are not to dominate the situation just for our own personal desires. We're not to be oppressors to the flock. Jesus told his disciples, you know, that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. They're great men, exercise authority over them. It's not this way among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. That's what we are. We're servants to the flock. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. That's a good one. We're slaves as well to the flock. And Jesus goes on to say, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, this is a flock that it says allotted to your charge. You see that there? Allotted to your charge in verse 3. God has specifically carved out a flock that he's building right here at Grace Bible Church. And he's given us charge over them. And we are to do these things that the scripture tells us in a way that Peter here, I want to do it with a, a loving, willing heart because God has given us them. We're not leaders of a cult. Right? God has intentionally, sovereignly brought you all here this morning, whether you realize it or not, to hear this message for whatever reason. I'll read to you Alexander Strzok's quote. As Christ's under-shepherds and God's stewards, the elders are under the strict authority of Jesus Christ and His Holy Word. They're not a ruling oligarchy. They cannot do or say whatever they want. The church does not belong to the elders. It is Christ's church and God's flock. Thus, the elders' leadership is to be exercised in a way that models 
Christ-like, humble, loving leadership. Do you see that? We're not to exercise dominion, but it says proving to be examples of the flock, a model. Live in such a way that people can look at you and look at me and say, I want to follow this model of how to live as a Christian. Now, I want to let you all know something very important. We're not perfect. Got to smile a little bit on that. We're not perfect, which means we're not Christ. You worship Christ, not your leaders in the church, but we're to be a model for the Christian life as best we can, humbly and loving. Well, let's quickly mention the verse 4, the reward for elders. The chief shepherd is going to come back. That's my third point. It's going to be really quick. The chief shepherd is going to come back and he's going to reward faithful elders. Now, he's got other things to say to young men and older men in this chapter. But right now, for elders, they're going to receive the unfading crown of glory. There's a lot of crowns in the New Testament. Often it's just speaking of as you're saved, you come into the the incorruptible crown, the crown of glory, the crown of righteousness, the crown of life. And that's not a kingly crown, a diadem. It's a it's a Stephanos, a wreath that they would place around the Olympian's head or the, the general who won a big battle. And that's an accomplishment. They're saying you have won something. We want to recognize you. And Christ is going to judge believers for what they've done. Again, not to punish them with hell, but to reward them. The Bible's clear on that. The Bema Seat Judgment. And he's going to give an unfading crown of glory. I can't tell you what that is. There's debate over if that's just salvation or if that's another. I, I tend to think it's a, a some kind of reward in the kingdom to come, some position maybe. Everybody will serve differently there. You've affirmed that he's met the biblical qualifications. Everyone voted 100% to affirm him that voted. Uh, I ask that you pray for your elders, that you pray for him in coming weeks because you know what Satan's going to try to do if he's not already? He's going to try to attack. He always wants to do that to the church leaders. I ask that you submit to the church leadership. Every new member, we ask their position on Hebrews thirteen seventeen. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. We've got to give an account for all the souls under our care. And it says to the people, let them do this with joy, not with grief. Let your elders do this with joy, not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. So the, the congregation has a, uh, an exhortation in Hebrews 13. Submit and let it be a joy to the elders. And the elders have an exhortation. We're going to be held accountable for these souls. Today you begin a new stewardship in this church officially. You've already been doing much of this, but God has entrusted you with this congregation, you and I both right now. God has given you souls here to care for. He's given you souls to disciple, to encourage, to give an account for. There's eternal consequences. There's eternal rewards for this. It is a big task, but through the Spirit in us and through upholding us, we can do this task. So, Joy, if you would come up, I want to formally lay hands on you and pray for you. In the Bible, it says, you know, don't lay hands on people too quickly. But the idea there is you do lay hands on leaders. Leadership, in a way, passes from one leader to the next. I think elders in the Bible appoint other elders the congregation then affirms that father we are so thankful and blessed that you brought us a shepherd a shepherd here who has a shepherd's heart he has a heart to disciple people to to raise up men to disciple them in the faith he has the gift of teaching as you know lord lord you've given us you've sovereignly brought this little young church now it's second elder 
Lord, we ask that you would strengthen for the trials and tribulations to come. That you would give him and his family a, a courage and a boldness to not fear what Satan might bring, but to stand in the love of Christ and believe that he will hold us fast. Lord, we pray that we'll spend rich time in your word regularly, that he will spend time in prayer to strengthen himself. Lord, I pray that this congregation will truly see him as a leader, will agree to submit themselves under his loving care along with the other elders here. Lord, I pray that we will have a fruitful and loving relationship between the whole body here as a result of the elders and the congregation loving one another in the faith. Lord, you brought us a man. You've raised him up. You've given him training. Lord, we are so grateful for that. And so, Lord, help this man to excel the rest of his life at this ministry, to shepherd the flock of God, to do it for the right reasons. And Lord, it's only in the name of Christ that we can pray such things. So it's in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, I'm going to ask our new elder now to come and lead us in the closing song.